Welcome to The Link, the podcast that links the past to the present for those who went to high school in the 1980s. It is a perfect time to reflect and to take stock and to think about really fun parts of our past, but also some challenges. I get to see and hear all your amazing faces and a blast from the past, which is always super exciting, seeing who we were then, who we are now. We really didn't know what was going on in each other's lives very much. And so finding out the real scoop is incredibly rewarding. Hey, everybody, welcome back to The Link. This is David Yaz of Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network, but more importantly, a class member of these following people. This is a weird intro. I want you to say hello to the hosts of The Link. All four of us were part of the graduating class in Milton Academy in 1986. Farrah Pandeth, Diana Donovan, and Meredith Zinner. Yeah, guys. Yeah. Hey, Dave. Hi, Woo! Hey, everybody. Uh, okay. It, uh. <laughs> Meredith, are, are you a... Full volume, I hope, because... I'm full volume. I, I never... <laughs> I'm at an 11. What else is new? <laughs> and Diana, you must be happy we're not doing this early in the morning because it's, it's just mid-morning for you now, I guess, right? It's almost noon. I, I had my little... I have 11 Zs. I'm, I'm like a hobbit. I get hungry. And so I've had that. <laughs> And may, later in the program, you might hear what Diana has for breakfast every day because we talked about that before we started recording. True. And yeah. Farah, all well with you, my friend? Everything is great. Thanks so much. Not everything is great. It's still 2021. Yeah. But so yeah, it's true. I have the pleasure of introducing our guests because Yay. we actually have a boy on the show today, a male, <laughs> and... It's a little unusual for this show. That's not true. We've had some that more. That's totally recently. not That's true. That's totally not true. We've had BS, gentlemen we've only okay. had one female no. season one no, we no, only no, had no. one this male time. but anyway that's okay i'm not number... a little biased you know, <laughs> originally is... we we almost made it like women only we were like couldn't we just talk to all the women <laughs> yeah. and we're like well that really wouldn't be fair but our guest is the number one male our yeah <laughs> our guest today who we might actually hear from before the show is over <laughs> Is not a chance, Mr. Roger Travis, my friend Roger Travis. He is a pretty, yes, doctor. go ahead. Doctor, <laughs> oh, exactly. exactly. You know what? We're all out of time, Roger. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do me. that except that Farah's lovely assistant actually addressed me properly. I, Thank you, Roger. I'm time. glad that you said that. No, he earned it. He yeah, and here's it. why we were only going to talk to women. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Raj, you're just a, kidding. I think, I think doc, Dr. J is more of a doctor than you are, right? Really. Um, that's not true. That's not true. Technically, it's, he is a doctor. He is an associate professor of classics at the University of Connecticut. He got his undergraduate degree from Harvard and a PhD, there's the doctor, in comparative literature from the University of California, Berkeley. So, on the plane, I would love to hear about the Berkeley years. On the, the thought of Roger and Berkeley that is, funny. is a good, is kind of funny. And <laughs> so, so Raj, let, let me ask you: when the when the pilot says we okay, have a medical right. well, emergency, just, okay, and don't he, volunteer because even though the, the the pilot is unlikely to say, "Is there a medical doctor aboard?" which is what they do say. Oh, they do say that. I okay. know that that's oh. what they mean. That's okay. awesome. Because it would be funny if you said, do we, <laughs> have, a, do we have a doctor on board? He says, well, yes, and I can tell you, you about. You start talking about, about, like, the Iliad. I don't know. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Homer. So, yeah, Homer. <laughs> the beginning of, of the Iliad or the beginning of the Odyssey. <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, just to continue here, if they give me a chance. Yes, so R no. Raj is expert on Greek tragedy. He's written on all types of topics around Greek tragedy. Also, a strange amount about the Halo, the video game, which is influenced a lot by Greek tragedy, which I just learned. He writes a blog or has written a blog, A Living Epic, about the fundamental connection between the ancient epic and the narrative video game. Same kind of theme here. No. Yes, he also works on developing and studying a form of game-based learning called practomimetic learning, in which learners play the curriculum and learn and play video games all at the same time. Roger was also a backup catcher for the Seattle Mariners in 1993. He, uh, he played a bully named Leatherhead in an episode of Laverne and Shirley and once shot a man just for snoring too loud. Yes. <laughs> Those last three things might not Excellent. be true. But the other things are true. Welcome, Roger. Yeah. Roger. Welcome. 
Roger, we're so happy to have Welcome. you. We really are. I'm so happy Roger. to be here. You are, you, are, you are not only having to deal with this crazy introduction, but I want to tell you how excited we are to hear about what you've been doing since Milton and how you are keeping the thread alive with the stuff that we know that you studied while you were at Milton. So tell us. Tell us more. Okay. Why are you? I, I I did study classics in as an undergrad and, and, and at Milton. You were one of the few guys that really liked Latin. I, if I recall, I love Latin. Latin is amazing. I mean, there, there everyone were, loves there, Latin. There were a, a bunch of us <laughs> who really were were fond of it and of the the wonderful teachers we had at Milton. And it it definitely if it prepared me very well for a degree, a bachelor's degree in it. And then I I had the choice. Um, really, I had to make the choice. I knew I wanted to be a professor. And the funny thing is that that at age uh, 52 now, I'm not so sure that that was, in fact, a, a fantastic <laughs> choice. Uh-oh, I mean, midlife I, crisis. You can always I, change. <laughs> well, yeah, I, and I, I'm, I've definitely made it work. And I've, as you'll hear, I've changed it in, in a certain fundamental respect. So I, I thought that I was just going to be like tweed-covered classicist. Pipe. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And but even oh, at Harvard, I, I I began to understand that that the way the classics was being studied within the discipline of classics was not really what I wanted to do. And so I made the choice that I, I wanted to do comparative literature at Berkeley. And how how much of a niche is classics at Harvard? Are I there hundreds of people? Whatever. <laughs> I was trying to Americanize it. <laughs> We oui, say niche. <laughs> oh, okay. You said I thought you said itch. <laughs> so, anyway, okay. Um, it is it, uh, it it is at even at Harvard. It is quite a niche. It is there are more the 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 per capita number of classicists is is probably greater there than at almost anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe of Oxford and Cambridge and places in in Germany. But it is still. It, I, I was one of, I think, six or seven that year. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. Okay. Of 600. Of 600. And, and what, when you said I always, or I, I knew that I wanted to be a professor, where did that come from? And it, it came from loving, for loving learning, I think, more than anything else. And, and, and really loving learning on my own terms. And the idea that there was a career where you could basically decide what you wanted to learn within a, a given field, and, and then you could kind of <laughs> sound smart about it. I mean, I, I think it, it's not to be underestimated that, that I liked that, that one of the things that, that made me feel like I was less awkward, because I was pretty awkward. One of the things that made me feel less awkward. <laughs> Dave! Is that, did I say the word of the day? No, he's being obnoxious with his little say, boy. We agree, I, I agree, you are awkward. I mean, no more. No. <laughs> what? No, really, no, Dave? Right, so that, I, that, thing, I, that, that thing means means 100. Yes, okay. exactly. But it takes one to know one. Roger and I yeah, ran in the no, same absolutely. crowd, and we, we, were, we, weren't, we weren't nerds by by label which is confusing by Milton stress right because Milton had a clique called the nerds which they, they were all, they were like what were they i don't know they were like ir- no no but, well some of them were jocks they were like ironic nerds and we were we were like the actual nerds they're all but, but like you know, finance guys now so but, but roger yeah, i think it, it's it's really interesting actually that you're describing it in that way that you wanted to find something where you could shine and you could feel like yourself yeah. Yeah. And, and so it was, I mean, I, I, I was thankfully the, our, our teachers at Milton made me feel like this was something I really could do and encouraged me. And, and this was a time, this was a time when you could encourage somebody to go into the humanities academically with a clear conscience, even though if, if they, if we'd known, if they'd known, if anyone had known kind of the apocalypse that was coming to the humanities, maybe they would have said, you can also do other things. I don't even know what that is. What, what, what's, you mean what's happening to the humanities? Yeah, yeah, so, I mean, yeah. It, the, the long and short of it is that unless you are independently wealthy, you should not get a PhD in the humanities. Got it. I mean, basically, there are no jobs, and the, the number of humanities majors is cratering mm-hmm. all over. That's and so even crazy. schools that specialize in the humanities are just being closed everywhere. 
That's I, mean, I just met this 18 year old who wanted to major in humanities. Yeah, it, it's it, majoring so sure. in it is still it's still a good thing because we still have lots of faculty who mm. are tenured and and we still and a lot of humanities departments are going to survive indefinitely, more or less as service departments, because we're the only people who know how to write and writing is always going to be an important skill. For, for lots of different reasons. But so you, majoring in it is is not a, a bad idea because it teaches you to write. It teaches you to think critically. You can get a ton of different kinds of jobs coming right. out. Could um, you, for people like me, <laughs> who've been off the rock for a while, define humanities? Oh, okay. There, there are lots of different ways to do it, but the, the, the most standard way is to say that it's the set of disciplines that study the past of human culture from a oh. bunch of different perspectives. Thank you. So English, history, classics, philosophy, the other languages. So it's it's studying human civilization and taking the lessons that we've uh, taken from the past, really ever since the Greeks, Thucydides, Herodotus, and Plato started looking backwards, even though they were looking at a past that, that they didn't realize was basically totally made up. Starting in, in uh, the, the Romans did kind of the same thing, but then what, what we think of as the humanities really began in the Renaissance in Italy, especially Florence, where scholars began, they, they, they rediscovered what we think of as classics to, to a certain degree. These texts that had been preserved through the Middle Ages, more, mostly in monasteries, and they, they created a new way to educate people. And the, the fields that they created became the humanities. And it was only beginning in the 18th century that anything like what we, call now, we now call STEM was was something that people studied academically at all. It, it began as natural philosophy. And so Darwin, for example, was a natural philosopher. And that eventually became science. Hmm. Uh, and the, the humanities, ironically enough, around 1900, realized that, that the scientists actually had ways of, of knowing things in a way that humanists couldn't know things. And so we developed this thing, started to develop this thing called theory, which is, it, I don't know, 20% meta, interesting metaphysical speculation about the meaning of culture and 80% bullshit. <laughs> um, yeah, I took courses at, at Brown in theory and I most of the time I had no idea what I was learning. And then when I would write about it, I had no idea what I was saying. And then I'd, I'd get like an A minus and be like, this is weird because I have <laughs> absolutely no idea what I just said. But I referenced various books. Dairy yeah, Dog. So I, I mean, eventually whatever. I wrote a dissertation <laughs> that was a, a theoretical take on three Greek tragedies, mostly a tragedy by Sophocles, his last one called the Oedipus of Colonus, which is about what happens to Oedipus when he's old and kind of looking back at wow. the horrible stuff that happened to him. What, what's our language rating on this podcast? Uh, X. Go for it. Yeah, you're allowed. You're allowed to talk Latin. Ooh. You're allowed to talk Latin. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No. Well, fucking a. Say what you like. X i i i m. Okay. <laughs> is that Latin? Is that your Latin? That's my Latin. Go ahead, Thank Raj. You. Now you've had this big build up. Go ahead, Raj. Okay. So yeah. So I wrote. I mean, I, I was. I loved theory. The the reason that I did comp lit at at Berkeley rather than classics was that classics was and, and still is to a certain extent hostile to theory. And what, what I didn't realize is that although the classes I knew were hostile to theory for the wrong reasons, they nevertheless were were basically they they shouldn't have been as scared of theory as they were, but 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 theory needs to be balanced in a way that that took me a, a while to discover and to the point where where I that I actually I, w I was talking to a few graduate students. I went to a, a former student's wedding on, on Saturday, which was oh, surreal because my partner and I were the only people wearing masks. And and I was saying the I I, I decided that I just wanted to communicate and persuade people, especially my students who are, are not in a position where they're ready to understand theory for the very most part, to persuade them that this stuff matters and that although Greek and Roman literature isn't really any better than than anybody else's great aesthetically wonderful literature and there are definitely civilizations that are even that have stuff that's equally great nevertheless it's it's really really good 
and it is foundational to a lot of what we do in in Western culture. And it is we it does help us understand certain things, some good, some bad, that are happening now. To to go back and and see what Thucydides was saying about realpolitik in the Peloponnesian War. I was just saying that yesterday. <laughs> Roger, it's actually what's really striking in what you're saying is how relevant it is to this moment in time, even this week, as we're watching the pullout from Afghanistan and the commentary around learning lessons from the past and understanding the cycle of human civilization, which is sort of the larger piece of this. It isn't just obviously a 20-year exercise and lessons learned, but understanding civilization, understanding humans, how they respond to things. And what I loved about what you said was how you study it and how you look at how others have looked back and, and seen things. So I appreciate you saying that very, very much. But it goes back, I was just going to jump in and say what referring to your earlier point about how getting a PhD in humanities, it comes back to jobs. So people now when they're going to college, they're not thinking about it in terms of how can I learn and become a great citizen, they are thinking, how can I Make, make money. They're, they only think about money. The number one job that most kids want to do is be a, an influencer. influencer. Oh, are you an serious? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, I was I making a joke. No, that's I was the number one. It's funny because I, wow. I think we all have a distaste for the influencers and at least a little bit. <laughs> But Raj, but Raj, the the nerds have risen, right? I mean, I mean, and, and so this. But don't is, they always? Well, I mean, the nerds always. They always do. It's no, but always. Raj knows what I mean. Running, there's there's actually who run the world, nerds. But there's actually some there's you know something the there's something hip now about going to Comic Con and being into video games and oh, yeah. gaming. And Raj, would you agree? To, yes, uh, I that that subculture. I, I think found itself and right. and also it because of the 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 growth of what i call transmedia story worlds that marvel cinematic universe is a, a great example mm-hmm. uh, they they have a lot and 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 because they like what they like they're like romance readers they they like what they like and they do a lot of it mm-hmm. and so they they have a lot of power in the marketplace and the video game industry is is nearly as big as the the film industry in certain respects. Video game openings, big ones, are bigger than than all but the the most massive movie wow. opening. Wow! Uh, so it, it is. I mean, what is coolness? I it, yeah. being thanks to the internet and thanks to the market power of geek culture, geeks feel a lot better about their geekery than. <laughs> <laughs> That's really well said. But also there's, but, but wouldn't you say, Roger, too, that, that we, we as an American society have also changed. And so this movement to be more inclusive, we're not there yet, but to be more inclusive and to be more aware of the silos that we put people in and how we define them. That's kind of, I mean, it's shifted dramatically since we were in high school, but I think that's also aided this idea that you can be who you want to be. And 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 have a have a tribe that you feel comfortable in, and and that's really changed as as well. Yeah. When, I, I when, think... Sorry, Raj. I was going to say when, before I forget. <clears throat> when Shin was on the show, I was we were talking about how the fact that if you didn't like the Clash and Clash. the and the Who, then like you you weren't allowed to show your face in public. You had to like those <laughs> bands. Go ahead, go ahead, Raj. Well, I I, I think it uh, a lot of it has to do with the internet. I don't. I, I think that all of the people who felt so isolated just because of the nature of, of their pursuits and and because well in the in the case of geeks because most of us are introverts all of the, the, that changed when the when communities started to be able to be formed across the world around interests in in certain kinds of stories and and that i mean one one example of that is is how fan fiction has become mm. a, a, a huge thing and even though almost by definition you can't make money off of fan fiction they you still have what is fan of, fiction sorry i'm um, the idiot in the group fan, no no, no. Fan, fan, <laughs> i wear it proudly is, is fans of story worlds like harry potter oh right 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 okay thanks they write their they, own they write right. their own chapters oh right. really right oh yeah and Raj, my daughter's really into reading them i don't think she ever writes them but holy smoke they're pretty 
fun to read, I guess. Raj, but, you Raj, know, I'm I, sorry. Go I, ahead, Dave. This is just on point, Raj. I remember you and David Hamburger, our classmate, having a lot of talks about Star Trek and other sort of geeky stuff. But he used to write fan fiction and submit them in creative writing class. And who's Changeling? You you know who Changeling is, right? Is that is that a character in the Teen Titans? No, uh, I forget. Anyway, it was kind of awkward when he submitted a piece of fan fiction to Mr. Connolly's creative writing class, and all of us just like, what is this? And he's like, well, if, if you don't follow the Titans, whatever, then you wouldn't know. And so Mr. Connolly's like, well, how am I supposed to grade it? Anyway. He was ahead of his time. Yeah. He, he kind of was, sir. Yeah. But one one thing I'm actually really interested in asking Roger about sort of ancient Greek is that whole component of your teaching has it changed in the last couple of decades as people are more interested I think just in terms of American culture of these like superheroes and these ideas of good versus evil how question. is that changing in the classroom yeah right because they're well, all architects on, on on a certain level it not hasn't architects changed. sorry Ar- it, it Ar- hasn't changed Ar- at all Ar- yet archetypes so it, um, archetypes right archetypes yeah, right not architects Thank you. It was just a typo. Don't worry. Don't worry. And on, on, on one level, it hasn't changed because those archetypes, I mean, Greek myth is the proof that those archetypes don't change, that, that they, they're there in, in various forms. And it's only their cultural elaboration that changes from decade to decade. So it, to a certain extent, because I'm, I'm, I, my lectures are all online now and, and are now <clears throat> about 10 years old, they, they haven't changed, but at some point I'm going to have to update them because the culture that, that I was studying 10 years ago that I was bringing into the classroom 10 years ago is no longer the culture that my students identify with the most. But on the other hand, even then I was going back. So I, I have a, a big uh, thing that I do about Greek tragedy and Westerns. That I, I think that maybe that one of the closest comparisons in our culture to the way that Greek tragedy worked in Athens in the 400s BCE is the, the way that Westerns changed over the course of the 20th century for us. And there's and a, maybe country music, not a, a, a country music aficionado. I do use I, I, I use classical music for because I, I want my, my students to have some some ability to look at that. Um, country music. I don't, I don't, and then I've, I spend a lot of time talking about parallels with Star Wars because that, that's one of our great myths. And that's even, even from the students that I was teaching kind of the very first time that I, I was bringing Star Wars into the classroom, that was well in the past. And yet, thank goodness, although I don't know, I have mixed feelings about it. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this and then I'm going to think about whether I'm going to retract it. I actually do not have <laughs> feelings about Disney. I think that Disney is awesome. And I, I, I think that that they, um, although various people in charge of Disney, like Michael Eisner, have made major missteps over the years, I think that the, the basic monolith of Disney culture is better, it has more good things about it than it has bad things about it. I mean, a, a, huge, a huge force like that is never going to be completely unalloyed good. But, but I, I think that they are superintending Star Wars so much better than George Lucas ever superintended Star Wars that, that I'm grateful that they bought they bought Star Wars and be, I mean seeing what they've done with the Marvel Cinematic Universe I'm grateful that they they own Marvel because they I mean both Star Wars and the MCU have become incredibly progressive they, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier series on Disney Plus one of the, the several series that Marvel Studios has, has done with Disney Plus Captain Falcon Sam Wilson African American Comes Captain America, yeah. um, and and not just in a, in a kind of token way, with with kind of some some relatively deep analysis and ideological critique about the meaning of Captain America. And the wonderful thing is that all of the the reactionaries who may say that that that's not what Captain America is about. What are you what are you doing? If you go back to the early 1970s, Captain America in the Marvel comic books became completely disillusioned with the the american system and eventually came back to it but he's always been i i guess what i'm saying is i i have to hand it to the way that even under a, a very profit-centered corporate aegis 
nevertheless, culture is developing in ways that despite all of our polarization that, that are showing that we're making progress. So it doesn't trouble you that Michael Eisner has just built that Star Wars hotel where it's 2500 bucks a night? You'll, wow. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't <laughs> think it's... That's capitalism. Yeah. yeah. Um, so wait, are you, are you saying towards the end there, Captain America was wearing red, white, and blue ironically? Yeah, I'm Captain America. I, depends quite. on what you mean by ironically. But he, it, there, there's a point in the 1970s where he takes off the red, white, and blue and, and rejects it and becomes this bizarre character named Nomad for, for a couple of years. I don't think irony is the, the right term. I, I think he, he, he wears it in a nuanced yeah. way. I was only being half serious, but I know. I know. But, but, but Roger, that's so, that's so fascinating actually, because it's, it's, it's repurposing sort of the conversation around what you teach and what's relevant today in, in a way that I, I want to add, was making me want to ask the next question, which is what's your favorite class that you're teaching now? I mean, what are you and really enjoy doing? Okay. The, the, this semester of for the first time in a couple of years, I'm teaching the course, which is on the, the books on the Yukon catalog, just as Homer. But I reimagined it really six or seven years ago now as a course about Homer and video games. And, and that's where I really get to go into the connection that is my, my main research interest these days between ancient epic and, and games. These days I'm, uh, I'm writing the, the book, I'm, I'm writing that may actually be the first book I start. I've, I've started, I think, five books over the last 15 years or so. But, but this one, I, it seems like it, it, it's got legs. It's actually about card games rather than video games. But the, the basic principle is the same, which is that we, Homer, as we think of it, has come down to us in the form of these two big books, the Iliad and the Odyssey. It was discovered early in the 20th century that those books are fossils and that they, they're the, the sole remaining record of what was once a, a living tradition of recomposition by singers of tales. And the standard name for a singer, the standard term for a singer of tales is bard. So what, what we have been able to reconstruct from internal evidence within the epics themselves and from comparative evidence among the, this one surviving oral tradition in, in Yugoslavia, which is no longer surviving, but was recorded by a couple of Harvard classicists named Milman Perry and Albert Lord. They, they were able to prove really beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Iliad and the Odyssey originally came from an oral tradition. And Generally, we moderns, when we think of an oral tradition, we think of we think of it within our own framework, which is completely written. So we think of, of people kind of hearing a, a story which is told more or less in prose and then retelling that that story. But what Perry and Lord were able to, to analyze, which is something that you can find comparative evidence for in a whole bunch of different places, like old Irish epic, old English epic, the, the French tradition that gives a song of Roland, that the bards, the singers of tales of all of these different traditions were highly professionalized. So the bards were trained um, in, in something that they thought of as memory. And it it, it, it is memory. It's, the, it, it's just not the way that we people from a modern culture think of memory. And the, the best way I've ever found to put this is that if you asked uh, a, a bard from one of these traditions, if you heard the bard sing the same basic story two nights in a row, and because of the way these things work, the first night, say, the hero rides his horse to the battle, on the next night, he doesn't ride the horse. He just goes to the battle. And then you say to the bard, did you sing the same song on the second night? The bard will say, yes, I sang the same song. Did you sing exactly the same song? The bard will say, yes, I sang exactly the same song. They don't, the memory and the, the, the system of recomposition is such that it's recomposed on the fly. It's made up on the fly. And so it, it is, it's the same story and yet from the perspective of a written culture it's different it changes it's one way to call it is multi-form huh and so it what the the insight that that's kind of led to to everything i do research-wise and also to this course 
which is now called gaming Homer, is that that's precisely the way that the player of a video game or my, my new set of research or an adventure card game, and I'll uh, say a little bit more about what the I know. Are. I know that you're uh, winking and nodding because Gaming Homer is a reference to uh, The Simpsons. Is it not, Roger? It is. It is a reference to Flaming <laughs> the Homer. Flaming Homer, the famous Flaming Homer. Obscure reference that, of course, Dave would never miss. <laughs> yeah, no, um, I, I'm good with I'm, The Simpsons. I, I'm no good with Greek tragedy. Sorry, go ahead. I'm now. curious whether, Roger, it, what your thoughts on Madeline Miller are. Have you read any of her books, Circe? Oh, and, Circe, yeah. And The um, Song of Patroclus? They're yeah, the, um, they're, 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 I don't. I, I mean, they, for a classicist, it's the you're always as you read them you're always thinking oh why'd she have to do that <laughs> well but she she studied classics at brown yeah. and she yeah. i love i sort of love her story and as a as a big avid reader and also a writer i sort of dive into her books and they're very they're a little like dan i don't want to say danielle Steele, but i've already just started saying danielle Steele. so they're very popular fiction version of a beautiful classic tale and i yeah. actually think that that's brilliant and yeah and it's it is recomposition as well mm-hmm. too in 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 a lot along the same lines that i'm talking about and and the, the thing that i'm most interested in i mean what, what i'm the the research i'm doing is about these three games one from the lord of the rings universe one from hp lovecraft's Ar- arkham horror universe aka the call of thulu i don't know if but um, if anybody has dabbled. And then the third is from Marvel. So they, the, these games are card games where you more or less play with a deck and the deck represents your hero. And in playing your cards from the deck, you are recomposing the story of, of your battle with what or your quest depending on what the scenario is and so it's a cooperative game so uh that you can actually play solo or you can play with somebody else who's playing another hero but it it's a a kind of recompositional storytelling that that's good to think with because it lets you look at the the kind of material elements of the recomposition that is you put the cards on the table and so the, the experience it gives of being able to tell your own version of the story and then being able to share that with other people who are either playing with you who are or who are on the internet or who are either in a forum or there are lots and lots of videos of people playing this that they share on YouTube and, and they get lots and lots of views. It's so it's what, what that's it ends high with, geekery. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what it ends up with, what, what my, my final kind of argument in the book is going to be, is that this is, that, that first of all, we, we, from a broad perspective, we shouldn't be worried about the, uh, the humanities dying because the humanities are, are just people talking about culture. They're yeah. evolving, right? Yeah, we, we do we do have to worry about the academic study of the humanities because we've managed to mm-hmm. fuck that up pretty thoroughly yeah. with things like theory. But what we find when people discuss these games and, and actually when they create for these games because people are making new stories for these games, making new cards all the time, thank goodness you can't copyright game rules. We, we have a kind of revival a new way to do humanities that it would be really great if people like me paid attention to and tried to foster without being patronizing. The not being patronizing is the, the tough part. <laughs> do you actually incorporate the games into teaching so that it's it's more interactive that way and everyone, your students participate? Give us yeah, an example so of that. Yeah. In, in this course, the Homer course, they're going to be playing um, a game called The Lord of the Rings Online as mm-hmm. part of their course activities. It's more or less part of the reading. And then, so that's to parallel the Iliad. And then to parallel the Odyssey in the second half of the semester, they're going to be playing a, a real classic game called Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic, which is all about identity and handles issues of identity in a really interesting way. So that's this course, which is slightly different from my other courses where the playing is is of another kind. So just last spring, I taught my philosopher's course. And that is, Dave, in the introduction, read that strange word that I actually made up, practomimetic. It's a, a kind of game course in which students 
in teams play as young Athenians who, for example, have to figure out what Plato means. So in this, in that course, in the philosopher's course, they're supposed to infiltrate the academy and then Plato gets them to infiltrate Aristotle, his Lyceum. And basic tenet of these courses is that the objectives in the game, the win conditions, if you will, and the learning objectives of the course are the same. So you, you win the game, you succeed in the game by mastering the learning objectives of the course. For example, one of the, my typical learning objectives is culturally contextualized analysis of an ancient text. Roger, as you, as you have developed these classes to sort of connect with what's happening with your students in their real world, and you're, you're making it really relevant for them, can, I'm just really curious about whether or not your classes are equally male and female. Are they, what, what is the makeup of those interested in all of this? It is pretty, the, I'd say it skews a little bit more male. But I don't, it, the, the courses are kind of not especially designed for gamers. And, and also there, one thing that's happened over the last 15 years as I've been doing games in an academic context is that the, what, what we think of as the kind of basic skew of gamers, which is very, very male, has changed a lot, yeah. especially because of the growth of kinds of games that are geared towards a, a broader range. Women tend to like role-playing games as much as men do. And even some of the, the, the fighting games, there's a, like, there's a famous game, Nintendo game, Super Smash Brothers, which has a, a pretty dedicated theme player base as well. So it is, it, so it, it, it does, I think, cl- classics also still skews a little bit male. Well, you're, you're, you're bringing, bringing us back to sort of a question I wanted to ask you about your career, because you started off in our conversation talking about why you went into the classics, what you're doing. And it, it just makes me think about all the changes that have happened on your, in the landscape of, uh, that you've been on, like in rather, as you're living it. How did, how do you look at, one of the reasons we started this podcast is because we wanted to sort of take a moment to think about where we've been and where we're going and reflect about all of the choices that we've made as you're looking at the different paths you've been on and why you've turned one way or another. What strikes you as you as you look back? As um, reasons for how I, way, ways that I ended up here. Yes. I, 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 the, the, the love of learning is, is definitely part of it. The, the, the desire to keep on fulfilling my, my curiosity. I, I tend to become obsessive about kind of individual fields of knowledge, a certain kind of cathedral, for example, and, and want to learn everything about it. And it really, although I don't, the, certain parts of an academic career lose their luster, like faculty meetings. The idea of being able to pursue that and then communicate what's cool about that to other people is is hugely important to me. And and that has kept me going even as the 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 crisis in the humanities has posed big challenges. I I feel like one it, on, on the one hand kind of holding back the darkness and making sure that that classics will survive in some version, although I, I don't think it needs to survive in the traditional version. That That's really important. And then on the other hand, making sure that the, the, that the other side of that coin is also honored, that, that it changes, that we find ways to, to make it change, that we find ways to connect with modern culture. And that even if, if the discipline of classics as we know it has to go away and higher education itself has to transform I'm, I'm not so sure that the idea of a major makes all that much sense anymore. I, I, and I'm not, I, I have colleagues who are very, I, I, I guess reactionary is probably the right word. They, I mean, they're, they're worried about having prerogatives taken away. I don't think we have to be organized the way that, that we're organized. I, I think there's a huge danger in that because whenever there's something like a reorganization, administrations tend to use it as an opportunity to grab all the power for themselves. And so, I mean, one thing we, we still have at an institution like UConn is, is 
the essence of faculty governance, even though that that's eroded in various ways year after year, it, there's a danger to that if, if higher ed does get a major reorg at some point. But the, I mean, the, the problem of how much college costs is, is just so very fundamental. And so uh, the, the, the prospect of two years of community college being free for everyone is, seems to me really wonderful. And like it might be an opportunity to change the way we do higher ed. I kept thinking, so I have a high school senior right now, and I kept thinking by the time we got here that we would have figured out, like, I really never imagined that I would have to pay for four years of college. I just thought, no, surely by 2022, we'll figure that out. There will be a more affordable, more equitable, and worse. wrong. Like, I am terrified. I am literally terrified. <laughs> it's it's not fun. It's it's really scary. I think that there are larger questions though that 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 have to be raised, and it sort of corresponds to what Roger was saying about how we learn and what we're learning, and how we think about sort of a holistic approach. And as we as we look at what's missing in our American mindset, so much could be alleviated if we think differently about how we're teaching and what we're learning at different stages in our life. I mean, I think we have an old model and not think, I know we have an old model that isn't working for, for the world that we are living in today. And it's really frightening that we haven't caught up, but And amazing Um, to have the perspective of a person who teaches the classics. It's such a really interesting way to look at it because you already teach something that is kind of old and traditional and outdated. And so you have to constantly reinvent the way that it is taught in order to make sense to the people. Yeah. Although a lot of my colleagues all over are, are doing their best to bring in other voices, voices of that that kind of are, are comparable to minority voices today. So I, minority is, I don't, I, I hesitated at that word because it it it's so it smooths out something that's so in fact textured. But but in any case, although I have colleagues who are are doing their best to to make those voices heard, we we still really only have the words of dead white men. Yeah, exactly from the classics. Right. Wow. That, that should be the name of like a uh, expose. You write the words of dead white men. <laughs> the one, one thing that's actually, it's, it's interesting, Roger, and you and I have had these conversations before, cert- certainly in the overlap of the, of the things that I do on planet earth and the things that you do, but this inability for Western nations to think that there is value in the histories and the cultures and the civilizations that don't come from the West is, is, a, is a monstrous problem to have. And it bears out in the decisions we make and how we think about the rest of the world, choices on trade, how we think about foreign policy, it's all connected. And, and I think this issue of, of exactly what you just said, old white men having the brilliance and only having the brilliance to tell us about what they saw in the way that they want to describe it is, is deeply troublesome. And it worries me. It worries me for, for many reasons, but also because we haven't, we haven't caught up with the implications of what all this learning in the past has done for us today. So I, I'm so grateful that you said that. I, I, I feel it deeply. I mean, I, I don't, having chosen the, the field that I, I did, I, I, I feel an obligation to, to at least say that, that this, is, this is what we have and, and to point to the places where you, you can find a little bit of, of subversion in a character like Penelope in the Odyssey or the, the, the way that Herodotus talks about certain queens in in the ancient world and their their intelligence their their ability to to get things done but it, it's those things if if we don't recognize that that those things are filtered through this same incredibly privileged western male perspective then then we're doing everybody a disservice 100% Hi, this is David Yaz, producer of The Link Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, we hope you consider supporting us with a contribution through Patreon. The Link is a labor of love for us, but there are production costs attached to creating a quality show. And you can help us by visiting patreon.com 
slash the link podcast. We have some cool ways of thanking you for your support, including t-shirts, mugs, and shout outs on the show. You can do us a solid for as little as $5 a month, and we will continue to bring you great conversations that foster the bonds of our high school class and beyond. Once again, please visit patreon.com slash the link podcast. Now back to the show. Well, we lost Meredith, but Diana gets to be Meredith. And the question <laughs> wait a minute, is she's going wait a minute. On, oh. on cue, she's coming oh, back. Oh, good. So my question is, what would your high school self think of you now? And if you could tell your high school self anything, what would that be? You're allowed to take the second part first. We should change it so it's not a compound question. Um, oh, no. I love the way Meredith <laughs> okay. delivers it. It's awesome. All right. You're right. I changed my mind. Perfect. I have to remember it each week. So. I, I think I think my high school self looking at me now, I'm a little embarrassed to say that I, I think I'd be pretty happy with, with where I ended up. Certainly not. I never dreamed of wealth and, and I'm not wealthy. I'm, I'm really, I'm incredibly fortunate. You're, you're right where you thought you'd be. Yeah, that I, I'd be, that I'm going to be able to put my kids through college, barely. But, but in terms of, of what I do and the things I, I get to do on a daily basis, but it, uh, I think my high school self would be surprised that I get to play as many games as I get to play. <laughs> nice. Thrilled. Um, Thrilled and, even. Yeah. and really gratified. And I would, I would probably, I'd say to my high school self, think hard about the scripts for relationships that are being passed on to you. Mm. And it's uh, interesting you put it that way, the scripts for relationships. Yeah. I yeah, that, that's mean. the way I mean, that's the way I feel about how my how certain big parts of my life developed that I, I was following the script, basically, because it was a script that, that was given to me. And, and also try not to take yourself so seriously. <laughs> Roger, yeah. that is a theme that this issue of taking ourselves too seriously that has occurred in almost every single yeah. um, interview. We were, we were that kind of people at that kind of school. <laughs> but, I, uh, but I also, yeah, I, I just think that was, that was the, the culture there. I mean, we're very serious, very important. We're so smart. We have to think That's really amazing. big thoughts. And we and- would never challenge the script back in 1986. Yeah, no way. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, for for I, I think a lot about gender and the way that that gender has changed in the intervening yeah. thirty plus years. That that's a huge script, and it also it has to do with relationship scripts as well, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm really I'm I'm thrilled. I, I ache for the people, the young people who are having to kind of go through. The questioning that that they have to go through, but I'm I'm thrilled that 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 they found that, and that that's another part of of what the internet I think has done for us. That suddenly everybody realized that that we all have been following scripts that weren't necessarily mm-hmm. appropriate and didn't necessarily lead to great outcomes. Right. Um, mm-hmm. that, that that I mean, the patriarchy depended continues to depend on a monolith, monolithic view of gender, a monolithic yeah. view of relationships are supposed to go. One thing I could tell my high school self is so much more has to change than you think has to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I, most of it today hasn't really even started to change very much. 100%. I, I think there was like one script. It was a very heteronormative script. And that was it. Yeah. And there's so much more to it. What script would you write? Would I would I write for myself in high school or for myself now? You choose. Oh, okay. I I would say that I would write a script where I managed not to feel so much shame about about the things that I loved and the things that I, I wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, and I, I guess I mean I, I to a certain extent I'm I'm living that script now. I mean it right. took long long time but but yeah i would i i i i I would say to my high school self you you do if you don't have a script then you you feel kind of lost and and you don't want to feel lost but but you should feel free to rewrite the script nice nicely i feel like we're gonna have to have you back on roger (laughs) (laughs) we're just digging the surface and we didn't even get to talk about breakfast 
intermittent fasting. No, but, I, but, I, but, I, do, but, but, but I do think I do think we need to ask ask it because we do have a couple of minutes. If I can squeeze this in for just a moment, I I do have to say before we went live. Roger was talking about the fact that he is training for half a marathon and yeah. I'm excited to hear why and what brought you to that point. Oh, well, I, I, I went through a long period. I've, I've in general, over the course of time since Milton, I've been kind of in and out of, of shape. And, and I went through a period maybe five years ago now where I was doing a, a lot of running. And that was when my daughter, Kate, was was kind of just in a that very formative what corresponds to our Milton years. She was at, at Medfield High School. And she, I think, she never let on at the time, but I, I think she um, decided that she wanted to to run as well. So when she got to school, she to college, she started doing a lot of running. And she did with her aunt. It wasn't, this was, I guess, after COVID had begun. So they did kind of a virtual half marathon together. And then she asked me if I'd like to do a train for a half marathon with her. So that's what I've been doing all summer. And it's, it feels great. And it's great to connect with her about that. And we both record our runs on Strava and give each other kudos, although that's <laughs> kudos, which means praise. Oh, for but crying. yeah, so it, it it's great. The the, uh, the half is on November 7th in Cambridge. You look well, nice and fit. Awesome. Yeah, you look totally fit. And and it's and you need to send some tips because because we want to know during COVID how you're keeping your motivation, because I think that's really hard. All right. What is this, a fitness podcast now? <laughs> it on. is. Yeah. Why not? Yes. It's mental fitness. Mm-hmm. As well, the, the the motivation is you having a goal, like that uh, you are training for something. If it, if it's just if it's just going out there to, to exercise without kind of a plan, it, it's harder. Although I I've discovered that, um, well I, I when I do my easy runs, which is most of the, the mileage you do, I, I listen to audiobooks and podcasts, and it, it's really a great way to to get those in. Good man. You should listen to the link. I was yes. just going to say. What a, what a great Perfect transition. Segue. Thank you, Di. Yes. Rog, stick around while I close the show. This is always painful because I get interrupted. But maybe I'll make it through this time without. Thank you for listening. Impossible. There we go. Thank you for listening to the link. A reminder, go to pod617.com slash link for all the information, all the past episodes. And you can support us on Patreon. Throw us a little support. We're doing good here. Thanks to our guest, Rog. Rog, I hope you had fun. I did. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, was that convincing enough, guys? Yeah, I guess yeah. so. It was great. You were great, Raj. You were great. And thanks, everyone. Make sure to Thank subscribe you. to us on Apple Podcasts. And thanks for listening to The Link.